welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance physical and mental health, and encourage community. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here today. I appreciate your listening. I hope to make a dialogue with you and bring you an educational and interesting program. Our interview today is going to be with three men and one woman who are involved in the making of a movie called The Welcome. The movie, which will be aired this weekend at the Mendocino Film Festival, is about Vietnamese, Afghanistan, and Iraq returning veterans who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, known to the public as PTSD. You're going to want to stay tuned and listen and learn a lot about what are war heroes. And when I say hero, I mean every man and woman who goes over to defend our country or to do whatever you think they're doing when they go over to these countries. But they go and they put their lives on the line. And these are people who have returned, sometimes with PTSD, and they have been involved in a week-long group therapy program, which is the subject of the film, The Welcome. So we're going to be interviewing them today. But first, news and notes, as usual, in psychology and medicine. Aspirin has been in the news quite a bit recently. Various aspects of aspirin are controversial. Not that aspirin doesn't do good. There's no controversy about whether or not it does good. But the question for many is, what other harm does it do and who does it do them to? A person like myself, for example, I can take two or three aspirins and I can take them probably every four hours when I get into a situation such as I had recently with, um, with uh, two teeth extracted uh, from my mouth, uh, as well as the roots of the teeth. Others cannot because aspirin is acetic and it has an effect on the stomach and the stomach lining and some people are actually allergic. Some aspirins are coated, so there's a controversy as to whether the coating has an effect and whether the uncoated aspirin has more effect in terms of being absorbed to affect the platelets. Because what, what, part of how what aspirin does, in addition to reducing inflammation, is, is it thins the blood. And so it is used after strokes. The number of heart attacks and strokes in America is bordering on staggering, if not actually staggering. Uh, heart attacks strike about oh, over 700,000 people each year, causing 125,000 deaths. And strokes affect more than almost 800,000 people, killing 130,000 of them. Taking a low dose of aspirin, uh, it's referred to as aspirin therapy, can help prevent these conditions by blocking the formation of blood clots, clots that can clog the arteries. They can, these clots also trigger heart attacks and strokes. And these clots are especially dangerous in people who have narrowed arteries due to a buildup of plaque called atherosclerosis. That's the subject that we've been talking about for years, atherosclerosis, which can be reduced nutritionally and through exercise. And you know how I'm always flying the flag of nutrition and exercise, and this is part of the reason why. 
Um, there is evidence that, that aspirin can reduce the risk of these repeated heart attacks and strokes and also prevent them from happening in the first place in some people. Some people who could benefit from aspirin don't take it. Some people who do take it have difficulty with it. Um, there's also now evidence that there's some relationship between aspirin possibly and, and, and cancer, and aspirin might be a, a cancer reducer. The bottom line of all this for now, I mean, you can, we can't all go out and become experts on aspirin. It's a study in and of itself. But it's once again something for you to be talking to your friends and family about and talking to your medical practitioner about, to the, your nurse about, and even to the man at the pharmacy before just going on aspirin or before going off it. In other words, just the fact that, it, that aspirin is ubiquitous, that you can buy it anywhere, does not necessarily mean it's something you should be gobbling down at any particular time or something that you should go off with just by, because you feel like going off it. It's an important piece of medicine. It's a medicine to consider, but it's also a medicine for you to be discussing, again, with family, friends, medical practitioners, and others, and, and treat aspirin with a great deal of respect. On the topic, medicine, we have a situation in this country where there is very little connection across hospitals with regard to the cost of various procedures. This makes it extremely difficult for each of us when we are patients, and almost all of us, if not all of us, are going to be patients at some time in our lives, if not more than once. What do we do, for example, when a joint replacement in a hospital in Oklahoma costs $5,300, and that exact same joint replacement at a hospital in California cost $223,000. That, that was not a mistake I made. $5,300 for a joint replacement in Oklahoma, actually in Ada, Oklahoma, ADA, to a high of $223,000 at a hospital in Monterey Park, California. Now, what are we as consumers and patients to make of this? What do we do about this? Well, the, evidently, the government under the, under the uh, Health and Human Services Secretary, Kathleen Sebelius, is starting to work on this, and there may be some relief in the future. But what are we supposed to do between now and when she gets that job done, which could take years? And the answer is, you have to, you have to do the same thing that uh, you do with buying a car and buying other things that we buy in our lives. You have to get three bids, you, literally, like you do when you're building a home or building something. You go out and you get three bids for the roof or three bids for the window replacement, etc. I mean, with the whole series of windows. Uh, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because it's a lot of work. And so, and, and sometimes when we, we have to be doing this, it's not the time when we want to be doing it. When we have something that we have time, a, a, often a joint replacement, there's time, there's months, sometimes years, where you can take your time and call several hospitals. In more emergent situations, there really isn't time. But when there is time, it is now incumbent upon us as, as consumer patients to call around and find out what the dis different uh, hospitals, different dentists are charging so that you get 
the best bang for your buck and that you don't end up paying $223,000 for a, uh, a, a joint replacement that you could get for $5,000. In fact, silly as this may sound, I mean, you've heard of this stuff called um, um, a medical tourism where people fly to different countries in order to uh, get medical services. One man told me he flies to Mexico he gets his two-week vacation paid for and all his teeth taken care for, taken care of, excuse me, and, and then he comes home and, and he's money ahead. Well, maybe it's that we're going to be fly, a lot of us are going to be flying to Ada, Oklahoma for our joint replacements. Um, here's uh, something. It said, treatment for heart failure range from a low of $21,000 to a high of $46,000 and from a low of 9000 to a high of 51. In other words, they made two calls and they get this range, 21000 to 46000 9000 to 51000 but none of them are as, as dramatic as 5300 to 223000 Well, I think you get the point. We've got we've to make these calls when we can in order to take care of ourselves. And the fact that, uh, that you have insurance that, that pays for it should not be a reason for paying $223,000 for a $5,300 joint just because your insurance is paying for it. Because eventually we're all going to be paying for it if we keep allowing ourselves to pay for the top dollar. Well, maybe I'm belaboring the point. I think you all more than get the point by now. Sometimes I get carried away. As you know, I'm a former professor. And what do professors do? We profess, which means we talk a lot. And... Well, I guess that's part of what radio is about. Um, well, I've already gone 12 minutes, and I've got more news and notes for you. I wanted to talk about the dangers of these weight loss supplements, but we're going to save that for the next program. And I wanted to talk about the difference between healthy anger and anger that's out of control, where people need anger management classes, but we're going to save that as well. And we're going to go on now and talk about our film, The Welcome. The Welcome has won awards at the Ashland Independent Film Festival, at the Mill Valley Film Festival, at the Naples International Film Festival. It was the best American feature documentary at the Ojai Film Festival, the best dramatic documentary at the Duca Fest in Atlanta. It was the feature documentary at the St. Louis International Film Festival, and it won the best film at the Western Psychological Association Film Festival. What is the film about? The film, The Welcome, offers a fiercely intimate view of life after war. The fear, anger, and isolation of post-traumatic stress that affects vets and family members alike. During the film, we join these vets in a small room for an unusual five-day healing retreat. And the film shows us how the ruins of war can be transformed into the beauty of poetry. And some of our perceptions may change and our psyches may be strained and our hearts broken. When I personally uh, watched the film a few weeks ago, uh, it was like being in a group therapy session uh, that I have led for thousands of, many thousands of hours of my life. And I sat there with tears uh, rolling down my face, listening to these returning vets, men and women, tell their story. What is post-traumatic stress disorder? It's a severe anxiety disorder. By the way, what's anxiety? Anxiety, anxiety is, a, is a feeling like a, 
like a buzz, like a tremor that usually begins in the chest or the stomach and radiates out. It's an uncomfortable buzz, some people describe it as, which brings with it a fear of imminent doom. So it's a bzz, a, mm, a tremor, a shake with doom connected to it. PTSD is a severe anxiety disorder. It means a lot of this shaky, tremulous feeling with a lot of doom connected to it. It has characteristic symptoms that can develop after the direct experience of an extremely traumatic stressor, such as the threat of a violent death or serious injury. The first case of post-traumatic stress disorder I ever treated was about 35, 40 years ago, and it was a young woman who was a bank teller on Lombard Street in San Francisco, and she was held up at gunpoint by a man wearing a black ski mask. As a result of this uh, trauma, she was not only afraid of guns, she was afraid of ski masks. If she saw someone wearing a ski mask, she would suddenly start to shake and start to feel as if she was going to throw up. To fit the criteria, the psychological criteria of, of post-traumatic stress disorder, the individual must react with intense fear, helplessness, or horror. That's what happened to my patient way back then. The characteristic symptoms include a persistent re-experiencing of the traumatic event and a continuing avoidance of reminders of the precipitating stressor. So you got it, something terrible happens and you have little reminders of it or large reminders of it and you go into this terribly uh, anxious state. You can also have flashbacks you can have bad dreams. You can have frightening thoughts. We're going to hear about this from our guest today. You can find yourself avoiding, staying away from places, events, or objects that are reminders of the experience. You can find yourself feeling emotionally numb, like everything is shut off, rather than have everything feel like it's coming in at once. You can have strong feelings of guilt, depression, or worry. You can lose interest in activities that used to be a lot of fun. You can have trouble remembering the dangerous event. You can find yourself being easily started. It's called hyperarousal. Tense. You can be tenser on edge and have difficulty sleeping. You can have angry outbursts, and I could go on and on, but we're going to hear more from our guests. And our guest today, in the background, will be Bill McMillan. Bill McMillan got sick last night. He's, he's, he's cooperating tremendously with us, and he's going to be here in the background playing some clips from the film, but we're not going to interview him because he is sick. And bless his heart for being participating. Our other guest is going to be Mike Maxwell. He's one of the therapists involved in the film. Mike has been at the VA in Portland for about 30 years, and he's been working in the business with vets since that time. We're also going to have on the program, you'll meet them very soon, Bob Eaton, a returning Vietnam vet who in the film tells the painful story of his experiences. And with him as well is Mo Eaton, his wife of 35 years. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health and Politics. Mike, Bob, Mo and Bill, are you all there? Say hello one at a time, please. Mike? Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Mike. Bob, are you there? Hi, uh, good morning. Good morning. Mo, are you there with, with, uh, with Bob? 
Yes. Good. And and Bill, I know you're there uh, in in the background. Um, okay, Bill, I'm going to ask you to please uh, start us off or continue us right now by playing a um, a clip from the beginning of the film, um, which we refer to as uh, as Laura's uh, poem. Can you do that for us, please? Hello? Well, doesn't sound like that's going to work. Can you hear me? No, can't hear can't hear the uh can't hear the clip yet. No, looks like that's not going to work. That's not going to work. No. Um so we're going to go on and play another clip and see if this works better. This is a clip um, of one of the people in the, uh, in the movie who has written a poem about the various medicines um, that he takes. And let's see if we can get this one on. Hi, my name is Jake, and I was assigned to the Combined Air Operations Center from February of 06 to October of 06. Um, I was discharged October 22nd of last year for injuries sustained while deployed. This is called, this OIF vet is heavily medicated for your protection. What you get isn't what you see. If you look closer, you'll see a pharmacy. I take the ones that kill the pain. For some odd reason, I can't recall its name. Come on now, this one's my friend. Oh yeah, I got it now. It's Vicodin. I swallowed down that little tab, supposed to keep me from being sad. As it hits my stomach, I feel so soft. You all know it as so loft. I look in the mirror before the next one to remind myself, Jake, this isn't fun. As I read the side effects on the page, it says, hey dude, this one's for rage. Here's the short. I take it. I'm not as mean. The docs, they call it clonidine. Scared, twisted, violent. Anxious I am. Times like this, I call on lorazepam. You keep me so mellow. You keep me so chill. Your effects are so big for such a little pill. Explosions, flashes, destruction, and screams. Mike Maxwell, uh, you're a therapist. You have been for many years. 
And this is uh, this poem is uh, is from this vet uh, who is on many medications. Is this typical are for for returning vets who are suffering from PTSD to put them on a whole pharmacopoeia of uh, of medicines? Yes, it's not that uncommon that medications uh, help allay some of the symptoms of PTSD. And he seems to be uh, telling us that the one of the reasons that he's taking them is for himself. But one of the reasons he's taking it is to protect us from him. Can you elaborate a bit on that, please? Well, you had, you had mentioned just a minute ago about anger, uh, and using that as an example, that uh, for a lot of these men and women, uh, anger can be a problem. And so there are some medications that help people uh, manage that a little bit better as they're beginning to learn some behavioral techniques to better deal with and manage their anger. Uh, Bob, you're a Vietnam vet, so you've had now decades of experience. Uh, what is your experience with, uh, with these uh, medicines, and what can you tell us about anger being a part of your uh, condition? Hello, Bob Eaton, are you there? Are we on the air? Mike, can you still hear me? Yes, I can. Um, Bob? I'm, I'm losing contact here, Michael. Hello? Bob. Oh, Bob, are you back on? Yeah, my other, my other phone hung up, so I'm back on my cell phone. Okay. The landline just... Bob, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, good. Did you hear me uh, talking to Mike about, uh, about the poem and about the uh, psychoactive various medicines that, uh, that Jake is on? I, I heard uh, just the poem. I heard the end of the poem. Okay. The question I have for you is, I mean, you've had decades of experience with this. What, what, uh, what can you tell us about the psychoactive medicines and, and the effects on you and, and uh, uh, the positives, the negatives, uh, the good, bad, and the ugly? Um, well, I've taken just about all those meds that uh, Jake mentioned in that, in that poem um, at, at one time or another, not, <laughs> not all together, um, and, you know, plus a few more. Over the years, the antidepressants uh, that they fed me were, um, you know, like like whatever which which one was new for that <laughs> for that uh, year, and also the fact that uh, the side effects, uh, you know, they, it was it was a, a period of adjustment, um, and, and until I was an inpatient, and and they could watch me, I didn't. Uh, really have a good adjustment on on the um, on the antidepressants they gave me. And how many um, how many years after your Vietnam experience did you become an an inpatient? Or was it right away? Uh, let's, let's, well, two thousand and eight. <laughs> so you know, I, my my you know all the stuff that happened to me was in sixty nine and seventy and uh, seventy two. 
Um, would you be willing to talk about a bit of the stuff that happened to you so many years ago that was so powerful that resulted in hospitalization some 30 years later? Uh, sure. Please. Well, um, of course, what, you know, what was in the movie, what I talked about in the movie, um, uh, it was, it was more like that was triggered in that group session that day. And, and, um, so I, I was having a full <laughs> flashback at that time. Um, and cause our listeners are unfamiliar. They haven't seen the movie yet because it's, it's just going to be aired this week in this area. So perhaps if you don't mind, you'd be willing to just give us a look. <clears throat> well, I was, I was involved in, uh, a, a ground attack that, that was preceded by rockets and mortars. Um, uh, and it was regiment size, uh, enemy attack that overran us. Uh, I was in an artillery unit. Um, and it, the battle, uh, kind of, it, it went on all night long. Uh, several of the guns were blown up with, with the people on them. Um, and I, I was, uh, I was detailed to pick up, uh, body parts and pieces of, of the enemy that, that we, uh, kind of blew away with beehive rounds. And uh, so that's that's had a, a, an effect on me, and I, I think about it quite often. Um, what? I put a lot of that away for all those years and got on with my life and had a business and family, uh, married three times. And um, I had a traffic accident in 1995 that uh, uh, just triggered every bit of that right back into my head like it was happening right now and that's when I started into the into the VA to, uh, to see what was wrong with me because I couldn't uh, uh, handle my business anymore I was having a lot of anger problems and suicidal thoughts uh, and one day I just uh, I wound up up in Roseburg VA in the in the psych ward and went on from there. Um, and, you know, it, it's just, uh, it, it's been a, quite an experience for the last uh, uh, about 13, 14 years in the VA. So uh, that's, that's what's helped me. The guys and gals have, have, have really helped me, my brothers and sisters and, and, and family that stand by me. And, uh, you know, I can't say that the meds haven't helped me because they do. They do. Yeah. And you say yes. one of, the, one of, one of the, the big incidents of the many big incidents that you experienced back in Vietnam was uh, what you describe about picking up these body parts after they'd been blown apart by something called a beehive. Tell our listeners what a beehive explosive is. Well, a beehive is, round is, uh, in, in, in the artillery sense of it, is, is a, uh, uh, a, pro, uh, a projectile that is uh, full of small darts. Uh, and when you, when you uh, fire them out of a the gun, they, it, it explodes outward, like, sort of like a shotgun shell. Um, and, and whatever's in front of it is shred, uh, shredded. 
that's what a beehive round is. Yeah, thank you. As I recall, one of your one of your jobs was you were an ammunition carrier. Is that is that correct? I work. Uh, I was working in a, in the ammo dump because my my uh, I'm not an artillery man. I I was out there on the LZ as a mechanic. Uh huh. And and um, my 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 duties were to work in the ammo dump and out on the pad bringing in ammo and rations mm-hmm. uh, daily. And resupplying guns. Mo, can you hear me? Is Mo there? Uh, she was going to try to call in on her cell okay, phone. Okay, so maybe we um, do, maybe we don't have her. Um, I can hand her my phone. I was going to ask her. Um, can you hand it to her right now? Um, Hello. Are you? Yeah, I'm. I'm looking for. Her. Okay. No, I don't guess I can. She's not here. Okay. No, I'm here. Oh, okay. Oh, Mo, you you heard, uh, and you've heard before, of course. Bob's talking about some of his experiences. I'd like to get from you, you know, some of your experiences with Bob, and and what stands out for you, with what he's been dealing with of these of these incredible traumas in his life. Actually, I I missed what he just said. <clears throat> I was. Um, trying to get on, well, uh, get back in yeah, on, my, on my cell phone. You've, I'm sure you've um, heard it because he talked about it in the film. He talked a, a bit about, you know, being assigned to pick up these shredded body parts, but he also, right, he also right. talked about how this whole thing was, was reinvigorated when he had a traffic accident about uh, something like 15 or more years ago. And, and yes. you, you've been living with Bob now, you said, for 35 years. Mm-hmm. So you've really been going through this with him, and and what are some of the things that stand out for you in your life together as a result of what of his, the trauma that he endured as a as a military man? Well, um, walking into the relationship uh, with no knowledge of PTSD back then, um, I really. I wasn't really aware of what was going on for a long time, except I just uh, intuitively knew something was not right. And um, and also, because of it, I was uh, starting to suffer from secondhand PTSD. Oh, um, that's a new concept uh, for many listeners. Please tell us about secondhand PTSD. Well, it's... Uh, Several of the same symptoms that that he had, I was starting to develop, uh, like hypervisuality and um, depression, and uh, just um, I wasn't I wasn't the same person that I was. I was changing, and and due to the relationship, because uh, I've never been depressed in my life, and I've never. Uh, been afraid um, of things, you know, uh, anxious, and uh, but I wasn't on any medication for it. I was just dealing with it day to day and and changing without even knowing why. You so you were uh, you were no, you were noticing yourself with anxiety and depression that was new to you. Yes. This is a very important concept: secondhand PTSD. 
because it's going gonna, it's gonna to be very helpful and educational to people who listen to this program and people who see the movie so that other family members of people suffering from PTSD can learn and recognize what they're going through is connected to the PTSD. So what did you do about it? How did you handle it, Mo? Well, about 23 years into the marriage, uh, uh, PTSD started blooming out on the Internet. Uh, I started doing a lot of research on it. Um, uh, both my husband and I started going to uh, therapy and um, support groups and group, group therapies. And uh, I went by myself and also we went as a couple to different um, groups, and it really, really, have, knowing that you aren't alone, that people uh, all over are having the same problems, really um, gives you the strength, you know, to to fight it, to figure it out, to find the answers, and um, that's how I did it. I, I did research, and I did uh, group therapy. And I'm sure the group therapy and the research helped what else can you point to that supported you in keeping your marriage together and having a successful, you know, you're, you're still together when the divorce rate amongst people with PTSD, as you know, is, is astronomically high. What can you share with us about, about what, what worked for you to keep your marriage together? Well, um, surprisingly, I'd have to say that the VA and the help that we got from them, uh, was a big factor, but we were still on the edge of divorce off and on, back and forth. And um, then Bill and Kim's retreat came out of the blue like a lifesaver, and uh, we went to that. And that that retreat and what my husband finally divulged to everyone, including me, was uh, I finally, after all those years, found out why he was the way he was and and all I could feel was great forgiveness which I never you know it just uh, I just understood all of a sudden and, and that retreat really had a lot to do with saving our marriage the retreat which is the subject of the film yes uh, Mike Maxwell you've been involved with PTSD and treating it for 30 years please chime in here about the film and, and about your experience, and particularly as related to Bob and Mo, but anything else you want to add? Okay. One of the wonderful things about the film was that uh, it was a way of connecting the veterans with the community again. And that's a piece that had been missing for so many veterans, uh, in particular the Vietnam era, that they felt that they came back to that didn't appreciate or value what they had done. There were demonstrations going on. And so that really kind of set the tone for many of these men and women about what did this all mean? Uh, what was this about? And, and, you know, if my country didn't appreciate what I was doing, and then I went over there and saw all these horrible things, what was the purpose of that? And so for them, it was struggled for years and years to try to find meaning for all of that, both for them personally and in, as a society. And so when you have this, this situation where you do this retreat, 
where you go and write these poems, and then you come into the community of Ashland, and you come into this theater that's full of people that, that want to be there and want to hear your stories. And then after each poem was read, these people got standing ovations. And so community was very important to listen, hear what they had to say. And in essence, giving meaning and purpose to what they had done and what they had participated in. Uh, my, that was tremendous. That was that was one of the difficult things in working with men and women over there. Let me interrupt you just for a second, Mike. What kind of t of telephone are you on? Are you on a landline or a cell phone? Landline. You are okay. We're getting a tremendous amount of feedback coming over the line. Uh, uh, are you alone in the room? I am. Okay, you just came in a little clearer. Um, in your experience. Um, do the verbal therapies are they are they effective? How do you do you do you see them as part of an overall therapeutic experience for people with PTSD, including the psychoactive medicine? I mean, how do you weigh these things? You've been doing this for a long time. And what, what can you share with us re regard to the very the therapies available? The psychoactive medicine therapy, verbal therapy. Talk about that, please. Well, as I've always said in order to be a good trauma therapist, you need to have a pretty good sized toolbox. Um, so the medications are helpful with certain symptoms, but they don't touch others. So the talk therapies in conjunction with the, the medications um, are the best way to go. And when we're talking about therapy, um, we're, we're talking about things beyond just psychotherapy. One of the things that we started doing back 30 years ago was hooking up vets with um, a spiritual counselor, uh, looking at the aspects of, of what their service had done to them, their, their spiritual being. Um, so all, what are called alternative theories, our therapies are extremely valuable and helpful in assisting these men and women to reintegrate society. Now, you mentioned that, uh, and as we know, that the returning vets from Vietnam, such as Bob, who's with us today, you know, faced a, a, a public that had very mixed feelings about the war, and so that added to the returning vets' confusion. What about, what can you tell us about vets returning from Iraq and Afghanistan, Are they, uh, and how they're being reintegrated into the community? Is there a difference, or is they're facing pretty much the same thing? There, there is a bit of a difference in that one of the things is that, that we learn some lessons from Vietnam, and over time, uh, things have been incorporated in, in the military uh, in, in dealing with TSD. So that prior to going into combat-type situations, men and women learned a bit about PTSD, what it was, uh, what are some of the things that they could do to manage it in the theater. Upon return from the theater, uh, they were again educated about PTSD, talking, trying to help normalize, trying to let them know about the services that were available and the treatments that were available. Now, some of the vets that I've interviewed have told me that when they attempted to reveal that they were suffering 
from something. They didn't necessarily name it, but something psychological. They were, that was seen as a sign of weakness. Is that still the case? Bob Eaton, can you relate to that? Is, is, is there some of that that still goes on? Whereas, you know, you're not, um, you're not a man, you're not no, bucking no, up. No, I don't think so. We're past because, that. Uh, the, you know, the most significant difference between our return and, and the young people today is that they have a help available right now. And we didn't, uh, as far as mental health goes. And um, uh, the way I handled it was I went back in the Army because I was among people like me. And... And, you know, it was the experience of, of kind of wanting to be on that edge all the time. Uh, the guys today are, are coming home. Uh, the, the, the help is there. And, and like Mike said, the problem is getting them to come in and, and seek it. And it's not so much because they don't, because they, they feel it's a sign of weakness. It's, it's more of the uh, just not wanting to go through the process of the VA, <laughs> you know, and um, uh, having having to to reveal their their trauma. That you know that's not easy to talk about, and and it's and and also the parents of these young men and women today are the Vietnam era people. And we, uh, we do not want to see them uh, treated uh, like we were. And um, that's why you find a lot of Vietnam veterans now uh, getting involved, uh, supporting veterans. Now the civilian communities are becoming very aware uh, and also want to help. And, and that's, that's sort of like what the film wants to wants to portray, you know, to get the civilian community involved and not just the VA, you know, uh, other people like Bill and Kim and, and now, now we're finding these retreats and, and help like wounded warriors, uh, all over. And, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Uh, please, Bob, you, you sound like you're somewhat familiar with wounded warriors. Would you tell, tell our listeners what that's about? Uh, well, the Wounded Warrior uh, is a is a nonprofit organization that uh, you know just just is an outreach, and they they don't just help with with mental health issues; they help with all wounds. Uh, they you know the sporting events is just just uh, ways to help veterans reintegrate into into society uh, that that normally wouldn't do it, and or don't have the, the means to do it. And uh, it's, a, it's a great organization, along with, with many others <laughs> that, are, that are now coming available. You know, w- one of the things that, that the film that you, Bob, and, and Mo, and, and Mike, and, and, and Bill, and all of you were involved with, the, the welcome, one of the things that, that really stood out for me, in addition to the, to, the, to the horrendousness of the trauma that you experienced, was the aspect of the welcome that you talk about or the lack of welcome because very few of us have the experience of going away for a period of a year or two or three, 
regardless of whether we go to war or we go on a vacation or we go to study somewhere or what, whatever it is, it's not a common experience to be gone for lengthy periods of time and then have to re-enter the community that we left. And uh, People who are in mental hospitals and jails experience that and people who go to war experience that. But in and of itself, just being away and coming back and re-entering is a, is a difficult and challenging task, is it not? Yes, it is. Uh, you know, in, in the case of people who go to war, you know, uh, the, the military spends about six, seven months training you to kill. And uh, it drilling it into your head to kill. And then they send you off to some foreign land and tell you to kill. And after about a year... They bring you back, and they don't spend one day teaching you how not to kill. Uh, but they tell you, don't kill anybody, you know. And it's really hard uh, to explain that 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 helpless feeling. Uh, and that is is something that I that I'm seeing being changed for the for these young men and women uh, coming home. Um, that, that's why I'm so so much into peer support and advocacy for uh, for my brothers and sisters. And, yet it, you know, I was welcome home. I, you know, I came home. I was welcome home. But nobody wanted to hear it. And then you had to sit at the TV every night and watch the protests and the people uh, just, uh, you know, and the war. And, and you were a part of the war. And it's like, you know, every every protest thing that you watched on TV was about you. And uh, that's, uh, you know, that that makes you shut down and um, you avoid it. And, and I don't think that it should be avoided. Yes, and, and the avoidance it, it, it is so dr dramatized by your story, Bob, because the fact that you had a breakthrough in this group therapy session you know, decades after the event, uh, just speaks volumes. And you know, as as I watched it in, and, and listening to you, as a therapist myself, it, you know, I'm asking myself, how is it that that this man was allowed to go for decades without someone helping him to dig in and and really expose this uh, this this materials and, and heal it? And, and you represent who knows how many tens or hundreds of thousands of people who are in a, in a similar situation who, who live for decades with material that's like a, a cancer underneath, you know, doing its dirty work while you're supposed to be walking around uh, in society. And what you just said also about being trained to kill is something that I'd like to, uh, you know, to underline. Because, you know, being trained to kill for six or seven months, as you say, Bob, uh, you know, it it pervades your consciousness then. You, you take on the consciousness of a righteous killer, if you will. And then... It, it triggers your survival instinct, you know, and it, and it works. And it works. But then, as you say, you re-enter, and then what do you do with the killer consciousness? It's, you know, listening to you deeply, it, it's surprising that we don't have more incidents of returning vets killing more people, not because they're bad guys or that the vets in any way are bad guys, but more by that's the consciousness that's been trained into you. 
You don't. Well, we we are. You know, we're. It, it's not that you're just taught to train to kill. You, you know, you are taught. You know, you're taught the difference, and you know the difference between right and wrong, and that doesn't leave you. You know, I mean, uh, even in even in combat, although you're trained to kill, you're not you're not killing everything in sight. It, it's just the fact that you have that knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that knowledge stays with you. Mm-hmm. And most of your veterans today, Vietnam veterans, any veterans, uh, will will give their life for someone because they know, you know, they know the dangers. It's, uh, they, you know, they're not uh, killers like like the stigma that, that that's given to us. Yes, I certainly didn't mean to. We're just normal human beings trying to, <laughs> you know, come back into society that we have a knowledge of things most people don't. Mike, did I hear you there about to say something? Yeah, you don't, you don't see that many vets that are killing other people. That's right. But what, what we're seeing is that this internalization that goes on and this difficulty with trying to understand and connect with and relate to that killer mentality or, or the death and destruction that you saw and, and that access and understanding of weapons, what, what it translates to is high incidence of suicide among combat vets. Because the the feelings are being internalized, that the you get the high incidence of suicidality. And Quite it, often. Yeah, yeah. I know. Are we seeing that? Uh, that's true. Both with, uh, returning vets from uh, Afghanistan and Iraq as well, Mike. Most well, it, it's extremely high. It's extremely high. Uh, Much higher than any therapist would when it wanted, wanted to be or see or uh, try to understand. Understand. Yes. Uh, Mo, are you there? Yes. Mm-hmm. Good. I, I want to ask you, what what could you recommend or suggest, uh, if, if anything, and hopefully something, to family members of vets who are not seeking help, who are suffering uh, quietly, maybe loudly, but are suffering and they're not seeking help. What, what, what could you say to those people, to the wives, to the family members of those, of those people? Mm, that's a hard one because everyone is, every situation is so unique, so different. Um, uh, very important is to, if the vet at, at any time uh, wants to talk, uh, and I was guilty of, you know, sort of shutting down when my husband would talk about the Army, but because um, was, that was all he talked about. But he didn't talk about what bothered him, what he, you know, the, the actual horrors. He talked about the good times and the funny stuff. But um, just listen. Uh, don't judge. Just listen. Don't try and advise, advise them. Uh, uh, maybe every once in a while you could sort of suggest maybe getting help, but just, uh, and, and don't give up, don't give up on them. But I hear the way and, you, uh, I, I hear the way you said, suggest getting help. You said it very tentatively as if that could go south if you said it in the wrong way. Is that right? I mean, is yeah, that... you just have to do it very gently and just not all the time, just every once in a while. Uh, just get the idea in their head, and uh, maybe someday uh, it'll you know they'll hear that and and act on it. 
but uh, just don't give up and just listen to them and be there. Listen and be there. Mike Maxwell, you heard me in the in the intro here talk about some of the symptoms of PTSD, the uh, flashbacks, bad dreams. You know, you heard that uh, that that intro. Uh, do you want to add anything to that, the kind of things that either the families or people themselves ought to be looking for so that when they see such symptoms, they say, hey, you know, maybe it's time to get help here? Uh, detachment. Detachment. Intimacy. Yeah. Emotional numbing. Avoidance of reminders. Um, uh, Mike, talk to us a bit about detachment, please. Well, it, it manifests in a couple of different ways, but one of them is that you feel detached from your surrounding day-to-day activities, uh, detached from family members, from those close to you, um, sort of like you're there, but you're really not fully participating, especially on an emotional level. Um, you're sort of numb to what's going on around you. You might tell your wife or your children that you love them, but don't show of affection. There's not that, that connection. And it's not that they don't want to be there. It's, it's they, they have difficulty feeling of, of being close, of being there with their own feeling, because they have to keep them below the surface. They have to control them. Is it a matter of if they don't control everything, then something is going to squeak out or maybe come flooding out? That's the concern. That's the concern. Well, I've got to control this, otherwise I'm, I'm going to lose it. And that's where, I, you know, one of the things that was so poignant to me about Jake's poem is him pointing out to the audience for, for, the, for the listeners haven't seen this yet but the man is reading that poem that we read at the beginning of the program he's reading it to a very large audience in Ashland, Oregon and what, one of the things that's so poignant to me is that he's telling the audience that I'm taking these things not just for myself uh, but I'm taking them supposedly to protect you from me mm-hmm. which I heard as a fear in himself that if I don't take these things, I'm liable to be dangerous to the people around me. And that's one heck of a way to walk around in life. Exactly. And I don't, I don't agree with, I don't agree with that. Okay. Um, let's hear Bob. I, I, I think what Jake was telling us in that, in that poem was, um, his, his, it, it was more of a it was more of sarcasm than anything else ah. that that we that we have to be medicated to the point of of uh, being numb in order to exist and that's not true uh, from what I understand Jake is is mo- off most of those meds um, and and most of the guys that are on those on those uh, medications usually aren't on them that long unless they're in really severe pain. Um, and, and the antidepressant uh, type stuff is usually in conjunction with group therapy and one-on-one. And without that, you know, I don't, I don't think 
uh, antidepressants and, and those type of medications do anybody a bit of good except change your personality. Thank you for um, that clarification, Bob. That that was that was very helpful, and and I hope you all heard that clearly. Where he's saying that the medications without the group and individual therapy are not not particularly are not that effective. I want to. Uh, we're going to have to end now. I'm getting a signal here. I want to thank you, Mike Maxwell, therapist in Portland, Oregon. Bob and Mo Eaton, Vietnam vet and his wife, who have been kind enough to share their story with us today. Bill McMillan, who's been sick and in the wings here, but he's the producer of the program. The Welcome will be aired uh, this weekend at the Mendocino International Film Festival. It's an award-winning film, which I'm sure you'll all benefit from, uh, from seeing. And thank you all uh, for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my friend, Mike DeLora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.